0: Hi, and welcome to Episode 7 of Sacred Science, Leaning Wisdom from Science and Religion. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rabbi Jeff Middleman, Founding Director of Sinai and Synapses, which bridges the worlds of religion and science. What did our primate ancestors eat, and how do we know? Is the paleo diet a marketing strategy, or is it based on real science? And how do scientists learn how to talk to the public more effectively? We spoke with Dr. Brianna Pobiner on those topics because she is an expert in all of them and is also a Sinai and Synapsis Fellowship alumna. Dr. Pobiner is a paleoanthropologist at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History who studies the evolution of human diets with a focus on meat-eating, including topics as diverse as human cannibalism and chimpanzee carnivory. She has conducted research in Kenya, Tanzania, South Africa, Indonesia, Romania, and the United States. She also leads the museum's human origins programs, education, and outreach efforts, which includes managing their public programs, website content, social media, and exhibition volunteer training. This conversation was recorded on February 2nd, 2021. I'm I'm really curious. You know, I'd love for you to be able to share what exactly is paleoanthropology what is it that you study what is it that you do on a day-to-day basis
1: yeah so paleoanthropology so anthropology is the study of people and paleoanthropology is basically the study of past people so I'm interested in prehistoric humans um mostly before the origin of our species homo sapiens um so paleoanthropologists use a a couple different lines of evidence to um do research on human evolution. One of them is looking at fossils, fossils of human ancestors themselves or cousins, fossils of animal bones um, from early human sites. And that's what I study. I'm interested in early human diet and what people ate in the past. Um, Another big line of evidence is archeology span and all of the tools and art objects and artifacts and things that um, our ancestors made. There's a lot more of those than there are fossils. Um, to get a sense of, you know, what were people doing out there in the landscape? What were they making? What were they eating? What were they um, creating? Um, And another line of evidence is genetics. And so we can use not only DNA from even fossils sometimes, but DNA from and proteins and other ancient molecules from... or, or molecules from modern people to understand our genetic relationships in the past. So, but yeah, my particular focus in paleoanthropology is the evolution of human diet. Um, I'm interested in the origin of meat eating. Um, when the, the base of the human family tree goes back about six or seven million years ago, that's when we first shared a common ancestor with the branch that led to chimpanzees. And then the branch that led to us led to like a nice flowering bush that had other species on it. Um, And some of those species, maybe by about somewhere between two and a half and three and a half million years ago, started to do this odd thing for a primate, because that's how we fit into the tree of life primates. They started to eat meat from large animals. So I'm interested in like, why did that happen? Although the why questions are hard to answer about the past, but how did that happen and where did that happen and how did it change over time and what kinds of animals were they eating and how were they getting access to those animals? So those are the kinds of questions that that I'm interested in my research.
0: So how do you discover those kinds of questions? And I and, and as sort of a follow-up, what's, what's interesting is you're talking about the levels of years. As human beings, we don't really conceive of timescales, right? So we just think of this as like, a long time ago and homo sapiens is only what 200 300,000 years old and and the you know the, our origins are, you were talking about 2 million years ago which is also different than 6 million years ago so these are all different time scales that we also need to be able to untangle so how do we do that and and how do we how do we understand all of these different aspects when there's not that much that's, that's probably left.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And I think it's, you know, humans have a hard time with deep time and sort of wrapping our heads around things that happened that long ago. And I think honestly, even for scientists, it's often, it can be kind of abstract. It's numbers on a page and what's the difference between a million and two million years ago, a million years is the average time span of a mammal species. So like a lot happens in that amount of evolutionary time. Um, so I got interested in this question, um, when I was an undergraduate student, um, I was, I, I really fell in love with human evolution after I went on a field school in South Africa, um, between my junior and senior year of college and figured out that this is the career path I wanted to pursue. Um, but I, I realized that A, there, there, there are a lot of human fossils and early human fossils, but, um, they are like the, I don't know, the gold commodity of paleoanthropology, And there seemed to be a lot of people studying them and not that many fossils. So I thought, well, there must be something else that's maybe a little bit less competitive. Um, so that was one thing. And also when we were in the field um, surveying for fossils or excavating fossils and there were experts with us, that could pick up like a little piece of a tooth and go, oh yeah, that's an upper left third molar, like right third molar of an extinct zebra. And I was like, well, I want to be able to do that. That's awesome. So I got interested in studying animal fossils. And then it was really thinking about, um, you know, what are the things, what what do I want to know about people in the past? Like what, what are fundamental parts of any organism's niche? And, and what you eat is a really big part dictates so much about adaptations, and so um, it was that that sort of got me started in my research questions.
0: And you know, I know that that you have done a lot of study about about meat and how we how we develop that, and and I'm I'm curious. One thing that I've learned, and I don't know if this is accurate, but but it's my own theory that I'm sure that I'm stealing from somebody that that a lot of actually human morality and justice came because of meat. because you need to be able to work together. You need to be able to communicate. You need to be able to trust that if I'm going to throw my spear or whatever tool that's going, that that we're going to do it at the same time, that, um, that I'm being honest with, with how much time and energy I'm putting into this, that, you know, a lot of every single religion has a basis of love your neighbor as yourself because we needed to be able to have a, a social structure because meat is so valuable and so risky. Um, how how does that link? I mean, do you, have you, do you see that all? And do you see that also in other animal species of having that socialization and that social community there?
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, it's really interesting thinking about what needs to be in place in order for early humans to be able to get access to, Big animals that they clearly were butchering and eating, based on the fossils of those animals that have cut marks from stone tools made by early humans. Um, so, you need to be able to cooperate because, you know, one early human's probably not going to butcher a giant extinct elephant or giraffe or rhino or something like that. Um, to be able to have some sort of pretty sophisticated communication, particularly once people started hunting, I think scavenging was the earliest way that our ancestors got meat, probably just eating the leftovers of naturally dead animals or eventually maybe stealing animals that are stealing the leftovers from kills of big predators. But I think, you know, we could see from social carnivores when they're hunting, there is a lot of, I mean, you could think of it as trust and, um, you know, understanding and planning and um, like sophisticated communication. Um, so you know there there are definitely aspects of social and communal behavior and maybe even things like language that may have been um, the result of selection for increased meat eating and even eating things like marrow and other tissues like brains to sort of you know use everything you can when you um, get access to an animal carcass and and that may have led to a lot of the things that kind of make us human
0: so you would mention that some of what we were looking at, we're looking at teeth, we're looking at tiny little fossils here. How does that give us a window into early humans and and pre-humans? Like, how do, you know, how do, how do, you know, like, oh, that's the right third molar? How do we then extract laid out and say, well, that was what their diet was. And therefore that maybe? you know, what are we able to know from a very limited amount of of data to be able to create theories and structures and, and ideas?
1: Yeah, I mean, the cool thing about the fossil record in some sense is that every single little scrap of fossil can tell a story. So if it's an early human tooth, um, you can look at just the size and shape of that tooth, the morphology, to get a sense of what kinds of foods that early human species or individual was adapted to eating. Um, If it's a fossil of an animal... I can look on tiny pieces of fossils, a few centimeters big, and I just take a magnifying lens essentially and look for evidence of butchery marks um, to see if they were, you know, eaten by early humans. And so I don't even have to necessarily know what kind of animal it was, what bone it was from the animal. But I can, if when we dig up, you know, spend a couple years excavating a site and I have a thousand fossils... And only some of the butchery marks. I can say, oh, well, maybe the early humans here were particularly going after, you know, certain animals or certain parts of those animals. And oh, are those the meaty parts? Maybe they actually got to these animals before the predators did. Oh, or were they the parts that only had good marrow left on them? So maybe they were scavenging. So, I mean, really, every fossil tells a story. And when we put Multiple fossils together, then we can get, I think, a richer story and and like paint a, a more full picture
0: of the past. So there was a, a question that came up, which was that that I, you know some some mammals and some primates are are vegetarian and some are carnivores and some are omnivores and and so what what creates a precipitates a shift in a species from becoming vegetarian to omnivorous or or vegetarian to omnivorous to carnivorous? What precipitates yeah. those? And it's, I'm assuming it's also a long stretch of time that happens.
1: Exactly. So that's a really good question. So we assume that the, the, you know, the common ancestor species, um, you know, whether it's one or multiple that we shared with the ancestors of chimpanzees who are our closest living relatives. So chimpanzees um, do eat meat. They are thought of as, you know, all all vegetarian or herbivorous, but um, some groups of chimpanzees actually um, do spend quite a bit of time hunting small monkeys in the forest where they live um, in equatorial Africa. And so, or, or in the savanna, like open savannas where they live. So um, we assume that because modern humans and chimpanzees both eat meat, that maybe that common ancestor incorporated meat from small animals, maybe birds, um, lizards, you know, things you can catch. Um, but the big shift happened um, where we see evidence for um, meat eating of animals that were much bigger than the sizes of those early humans. And so all of a sudden we see in the fossil record, large animals, much larger than early human individuals that were butchered. The the question of like, why does that happen is a really good question. And I, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that's a question we'll ever be able to answer. There are different hypotheses about um, why um, or how that shift might happen. Um, One idea is that with changing climates, um, there may have been in some areas where maybe forests were receding and grasslands were expanding, you may have just simply had more animals out there. And so that was a more plentiful food resource. Maybe watching predators kill those animals and figuring out, is there a way that we can get access to those too? Um early humans never really had the teeth to be able to, we're, we're not carnivores. And so definitely humans are omnivores and really probably all early humans were omnivores. Um, and so it was also really with the invention of simple stone tools where you just take a rock and hit another rock and break our, break off um, a sharp stone flake, like that kind of Stone knife just opens up a lot more resources on the African savanna, and eventually, probably also you can whittle a stick to make it into something like a spear, um, and eventually an arrow. And so, um, so I think it was a combination of um, potentially having the uh, the other thing about animals is that an animal is an animal. Um, so as early humans were migrating to different areas within Africa, outside of Africa plants are different. And so, you know, presumably they would have been maybe following some of these plant communities as climates were shifting, but animals are animals. And so generally they are, you know, kind of the same and safe to eat.
0: Right. And animals, they're either either there's there are some that are going to fight you or they're going to exhaust you particularly I think in in Africa I mean the the animals I, from what I understand and you've done a lot of field work there uh so you know much more than I do but but I would think that some of the animals there are incredibly dangerous or if it's like a gazelle that it will totally outrun you or jump over you and um and giraffes you know they're they can they've got a kick to them you know, that's, that's right. And, Um, so there's, so there's a, it's a lot of risk reward calculus that needs to happen
1: Absolutely. And, you know, one of the so, yes, I, I do field work, um not only excavating fossils, but also in modern ecosystems in Africa, looking for for bones on the surface. I'm I'm trying to get a handle on what it looks like when different carnivores in the present chew on bones. So then I can look for those chewing patterns in the fossil record. And I walk around um, my team and I with armed guards to make sure that none of these, you know, herbivorous, but dangerous to humans, megafauna, like rhinos and elephants and buffalo and things that we've had a lot of close encounters with. Um, So that's why, you know, technology is so important. Once humans invented even thrusting spears to be able to Um, you know, um, go after animals, but throwing spears where you can stand back and throw a spear um, with any kind of accuracy to be able to take down animals, that I think was probably a big game changer in being able to hunt animals safely. Interestingly, there are, there are, you know, gazelles and other animals are incredibly fast and, uh, you know, we can never even get near them when we're doing our bone walking transects in the field because they're like, bye, see ya. Um, But when some species, when they have their young, um, their sort of anti-predator defense is to stash the young in the grass and they basically keep them somewhere, hopefully hidden, go off and feed and come back and nurse. Um, And so um, a collection, a fossil assemblage from a site that I worked on in Kenya called Kanjera South, which is actually in Western Kenya, um, had some evidence of very young antelope um, or bovids or, or gazelle that were butchered by early humans. And so one hypothesis is maybe they were actually accessing these young, like kind of newborn individuals that were just left in the grass um, while their moms were out foraging. So I think it's also, you know, um, getting a sense of where the um, animal access feeding opportunities would be. And so that's really good sort of landscape mapping and and mental mapping and figuring out even if they're a migrating prey and when they're going to come and that sort of thing.
0: So as you're talking, I'm thinking about some of the, I would say sort of emotional and, and almost religious perspectives on this. I'm talking about early humans hunting antelope young. Right. And you mentioned that. And and my immediate visceral reaction was that is a horrible thing to do. Right. That's because but because we're living this in in 21st century America. And yet, as you also mentioned, humans are animals. And six million years ago, two million years ago, a million years ago, there wasn't society. There wasn't agriculture. There wasn't industry. Humans were trying to survive. They were an animal that were as threatened and as dangerous as many other or they just they needed to be able to survive in their niche and so how does that how does that impact when you're talking about these kinds of pieces of trying to say here's how early hominins lived in in the african savannah three million years ago i'm assuming there are people who are in the 21st century and they have an immediate revulsion or or fear, or or maybe pushback. We can even talk about pushback against evolution. But even just talking about this, as as human beings, uh, of of you're talking about here's what life was like on the African savannah three million years ago. People, it's hard to be able to transport yourself into that time.
1: It is, and you know they are different than us, different species in us, but like still in our broad family, really. Um, and so thinking about what makes them different from us, what makes them similar or make, you know, made them similar. Um, and, and absolutely there's a, you know, I'm interested even as a scientist in thinking about how to make those emotional connections with those long ago, um, you know, different than us ancestors, um, but but there can be barriers thinking about like, well, life was very, you know, there wasn't culture really in the way that we think about it. It, you know, it was very much um, the, you know, the way that animals live today. And so early humans, our ancestors were just another mammal on the landscape in a sense. Um so that can be difficult and thinking about like would we be would we feel the same kind of revulsion watching a lion stalk a gazelle as we would thinking about early humans trying to you know they're hungry and they need a meal so
0: it's a good question. And and I think what's what's interesting and what's complicated we talked about this at the very beginning which is that cultural evolution is much faster than biological evolution. And so you know, a cultural evolution in America, it's, it's shot up incredibly fast of what we're able to do and change from 2000 to 2021 and from 1900 to now. But, um, as a religion is let's be very generous, 3,000, 5,000 years old. Um, you know, cities and, and, and agriculture is 10 to 20,000 years old. And Homo sapiens sapiens is 250,000 years old. And, and you know these these early shared ancestors they're 1 to 2 to 6 million years old let alone the precambrian explosion which was what 650 million years like we, like we can't even conceive of of how how much are we you know, we're rooted together you know we get we're getting angry about all of these political pieces and religious pieces because we are still biologically still on the african savanna
1: well, yeah, so I mean, there's there's this whole idea that we of evolutionary mismatch, like we are adapted to Pleistocene environments, you know, both socially and ecologically, and that, you know, that drives a lot of our responses. I mean, Evolution can happen relatively quickly, you know, physical evolution as well, or biological evolution as well as cultural evolution. But but there is something to be said for the idea that, like, we are still animals and we are still subject to, you know, those same forces and drives. I mean, we have culture in some sense to moderate and mitigate that, um, but, you know, a lot of that, it's... There are choices that we make, I guess.
0: Well, and and you, I'd love to pivot a little bit, Natalie, because you've you've used a couple of words that we haven't actually linked together. But I know it's something that you're talking about. And the words are paleo and diet, and that has become a massive marketing craze of the paleo diet, the paleo diet, the paleo diet. And you've done some work on what actually was the paleo diet, and I so I'd love to hear what that actually was, and What happens when science and marketing are not always the same thing?
1: Yeah, that happens a lot.
0: Um, so uh, oftentimes the people say, what
1: was the paleo diet? Like my one sentence answer would be whatever early people could get their hands on. That was the paleo diet. Um, um, I sometimes laugh thinking about the modern paleo diet movement because it's all about the things you can't eat. And I'm thinking like, no way would you ever find, you know, early, even early modern humans saying like, I can't eat those legumes or I can't eat those potatoes or like oh, that's not happening. Um, and I know that the idea behind that is that, well, you know, humans have only been eating X kind of food for a certain amount of time and we haven't adapted to be able to digest it. But, um, a lot of those timescales are a little bit off. Um, so like, you know, we know that humans have been eating grains for 30,000 years. Um, Even and we also know that dietary evolution can happen really quickly. So um, about a third of modern humans on the planet today can digest lactose, the sugar in milk. Um, About somewhere between five and 7,000 years ago, no human adults could digest lactose. Like all other mammals, babies can digest milk sugar while they're nursing, and then by the age of about two or three, or at least that's, you know, equivalent age in humans. um, Basically, that ability gets turned off genetically. Um, So that persists for many of us. And that was a very fast evolutionary change. Um, I could do a whole nother, you know, session on why that happened or how that happened. But that's, you know, that's 5,000 years. It didn't take that long. Um, And we even see things like with the ability to digest starch, there's a um, a variation in the number of copies of a gene that um, codes for the production of, of amylase. It's an enzyme in your saliva to break down starch. And modern human populations that eat a high-starch diet have more copies of that gene. So these sorts of changes can happen really quickly. Um, and certainly, I think evidence from like you know our gut microbiota, that can turn really quickly. So... Um, And the other answer to that question is like, well, which paleo diet? Is it the paleo diet of the Neanderthals, who are our closest extinct relatives, really? They lived in Europe and Western Asia between about 400,000 and 40,000 years ago. They ate a lot of meat because they lived in Ice Age environments where there weren't a lot of plants available, although they did still eat plants. Are we talking about the, the maybe direct ancestors of modern humans, a species called Homo You know, it depends on the time and place. And really, most early human diets were pretty local. And they people ate what was available and adapted to what kinds of foods were around pretty easily. So, yeah, I, I always, you know, the, the paleo diet movement, I mean, I'm hoping one day to capitalize on the marketing because I'm thinking about writing a book that is what do we know about the paleo diet what really was the paleo diet what did people eat in the past how do we know and like what does that say about the you know kind of how we eat today and our and and the paleo diet ideas of today so you and, can stay tuned for that hopefully.
0: yeah well and, and i think what's also interesting and and this also comes up in in a lot of questions about science and religion which is i think it's a false equivalence but it's this idea that natural equals good yeah Um, And that's not always the case, right? Like that's, there are ways in which our, well, first of all, one of the things that human beings do is we change nature, right? That's, that's the, that's what we're doing. You know, basically everything that we eat is either, you can either define it as natural because it comes from something that exists in the earth or totally unnatural. It's it's kind of in my mind, a useless term, but, but if you're thinking about um, what would be a natural, political structure the natural order would be might makes right and you right whoever is whoever is stronger gets to get the resources and we're like you know what that might be the natural way but that's not how we want to make the world work
1: exactly and i think you know we have this tendency also to romanticize the past and think like oh early humans lived in harmony with their environment and they never extracted too many resources and um and because you know and think about like you said things that are natural are always better. Um, And that clearly, I mean, you know, people died young in the past. People ate foods that weren't good for them. They, um, you know, the transition to agriculture initially was really detrimental to human health. Um, So exactly. I I think there are the idea that anything that comes from nature or is natural is necessarily like, preferential or beneficial is is definitely wrapped up in some of that like oh, our ancestors did it it was this pure diet it helped us live long and healthy lives um and therefore we should follow it and i'm like no but none of that is true
0: right <laughs> right and that's and i mean i think about you know with covid and people have talked about this thing, you know, part of why covid spread was because of the ability to travel in a lot of different ways and in the interconnectedness but I mean, even five or ten years ago, the, there's no way there would be, have been, been a vaccine created within a year. And you think about the Black Death, or you think about the flu of 1918, and and it's COVID is has has been awful and has has killed many more people. But that is more because I think of of political incompetence and and logistical pieces than it is about the virus itself.
1: I, I cannot disagree with that I mean I think um yes <laughs> we, could go on a whole, we could veer off topic with that one but yeah i I absolutely agree yeah
0: so I you know I'd love for you to share a little bit because you've talked about some of the work that you've done through the Smithsonian and and some of the education that you've done and um and going to different, places where you're not just the Smithsonian of people coming to the national mall, but actually going out into different communities and, and libraries and local museums. And would love to hear a little bit more about what that initiative has been and what that's been like for you to be traveling the country.
1: Yeah. So, um, a a main strategy that we use in the human origins program to engage with communities is conversation. Um, so, I facilitate public programs in the Hall of Human Origins, which is at the Smithsonian. Not right now, because it's closed because of COVID. Um, but we normally have a few programs a month, which are very casual, where visitors get to talk with scientists, get to ask them questions. Um, once a month, I host a program called A Hot Topic Discussion, which stands for Human Origins Today. Um, and that's um, a slightly more formal, but it's still, it's an expert kind of kicking off the conversation, giving up presentation when it's in when it's in the hall, it's just somebody talking about their research. Um, but we've also had a lot of experts that talk about the science-religion interface or any kind of science and society topic that touches on human origins, whether it's conservation, science education, science and religion. Um, and so, you know, we find that the ability to have a conversation, to ask questions, to um, kind of have the visitors and the expert on equal footing, in a sense, instead of, you know, being up on a stage and delivering a lecture. It's really about a conversation. Um, So those have been really successful. And then about five years ago, we got some funding from the Templeton Foundation to create a small traveling version of the Hall of Human Origins, which we partnered with the American Library Association to travel to 19 public libraries across the country. Um, Because we realized that not everybody can come to D.C., even though, you know, I was on the team that helped put the Hall of Human Origins together. I think everyone should see it. It's wonderful. Um, But also, we really wanted to have the ability to bring the information to communities across the U.S. that don't have access to it, but also bring us. So there were four of us on the Smithsonian team that traveled to every single one of these 19 libraries. We hosted several public programs. um, And we also hosted a private tour and conversation for local community clergy and faith leaders. Um, And we really wanted to get a sense of, once they had a chance to tour the library exhibit, um, we all sat down in a room together and said, okay, so how do you think your community will respond to this exhibit? Where are, like, what difficulties are out there? Um, What opportunities are there to talk about how Sometimes science and religion are interested in the same questions. Where is there overlap and intersection in a way that we can promote positive dialogue? And so those were some of the most, I mean, they've been incredibly meaningful and illuminating conversations, just thinking about how do we lower the temperature? I mean, especially now when, you know, their debate seems to be, um, just such a common theme in public discourse. Like, how do we <clears throat> kind of step away from the somebody's got to be right and somebody's got to be wrong? How can we just talk with each other as people, figure out what we have in common, what our connections are? Um, and, and in some of these communities, you know, people felt like um, – it was one of the first times they had the opportunity to talk to a scientist um, and they were pleasantly surprised. It just, we're people, we were, you know, um, we were interested in what they had to say and what they thought. And I think that um, making those personal human connections is really important.
0: I'd love to know, what were some of the most interesting questions that came up from some some of the local clergy? If you remember, I know it was a couple of years ago, but that's... Yeah,
1: uh... so, I mean, I think, think, you know, one of the things that came up a lot was, you know, there are a couple of pretty well-known potential barriers to engaging with the topic of human origins. There's the, you know, where does the Bible fit into this story? There's the, um, you know, what does this mean for the idea of Adam and Eve? Um, So there's a couple of, and, you know, there have been a lot of, you know, scholars and theologians who have written on these kinds of topics. But also thinking about the way that um, science is often presented is very much a body of facts, like this is what we know, and it's the truth with a capital T, and it's, you know, it doesn't change, although we know that scientific, that's not how science works at all. Um, And interestingly, some of the feedback that we got from the clergy, um, both in terms of what topics they thought their communities would be most interested in, and what questions people would have after that two-year travel to the public libraries Last year, we did, well, in 2019, um, we did a pilot version or sort of an ex pilot phase of this traveling exhibit where it went to two seminaries. Um, and we created a few new displays that were really about questions. Here's some scientific evidence, but this raises a question is this the earliest evidence for religion? Is this, you know, evidence for care of one another in communities dating back two million years? Um, and so I think, in some sense, it was helpful for us to hear, like, posing things as questions, questions that would be of interest to both the scientific and the religious community, and sort of leaving it open and and um, urging people to, like, think about this and have conversations with the people who they're with. I think that was really helpful to us.
0: And I think there's, there's, a, there's a false idea that religion deals with the truth and and not allowed to, to question this kind of way. Um, and sometimes science is presented as truth with a capital T and being able to open that up and say, first of all, doubt and faith are, are two sides of the same coin and being able to say, Asking questions is a reasonable thing to be able to do, and and for scientists to be able to say these are the things that we don't know. This is they're, they're, if there is new evidence that may change what we are saying and teaching right now.
1: Yeah, and the scientific community is a big bunch of skeptics. I mean, we are <laughs> we are always, you know. Um, you know, uh, skeptical of new information. Um, and so in some sense, sort of the, what's scientifically accepted has been well vetted, but there is always room for new information. I mean, that's how we come up with our research questions. That's how we're like, oh, but we thought we knew this, but we didn't know that part, or somebody's done another experiment and it turns out there's a little nuance over here. Um, and so I think that, that, um, Absolutely, saying here's what we don't know, but to scientists, like, well, that's the fun part. That's where we get to do our research. That's not scary, or it doesn't mean that scientists don't know what they're talking about because the limits of our knowledge are currently here. Like, that's that's the fun part.
0: And it's and 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 the being able to say, I don't know. I think part of the challenge is that it often gets weaponized, um, right? Of being able to say, I don't know. Well, then that means evolution is just a theory, and and that's a and in the public imagination, um, that becomes really difficult. I would think to be able to to say you know the word theory is a different has a different meaning to a scientist than it does as a layperson, um, and and so I'm curious as to how you talk about those kinds of questions in the Jewish community. That's probably not so much of an issue, right? Like there, although there's I think if you scratch enough uh, people in, in the Jewish community they will also say well what then 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 what does the bible have to what does the bible mean right it's the same kind of question that i think a lot of christians grapple with but um but how do you respond to somebody who's a little bit more fundamentalist somebody who's a little bit more um i don't want to say the word devout but that's the word that i'll use of, of being able to say i take the bible not just seriously i take it literally and this may threaten my worldview." How do you because I probably if they if that if they're if they're pers- they're expecting that um that you're going to attack them and they're going to attack you. So what do you say to both embrace the science and not be well, yeah, no, it's all fine. It's you know, we can teach the controversy kind of thing without turning it into an attack and a counterattack.
1: Yeah, and so I think that's there's a couple things like that's where those conversations come into play really strongly about um, so I'll, will t- tell a story about, um, oh, first I want to talk about the, I don't know piece, and then I'll tell the story. So I do a lot of training of volunteers in the Natural History Museum, both for the Hall of Human Origins, but also everywhere, um, throughout the museum, um, volunteers who are basically work as, as docents or engaging the public, um, and when I do training, I do training on how do you talk about controversial science topics, which aren't scientifically controversial but maybe socially controversial or um and so we talk about like you must get used to the idea that you will have to say i don't know a lot in whatever your exhibit you're you're volunteering in scientists say it a lot um but but what i will often say when somebody asks me a question that i don't know i will say all right well that's a good question and how would I figure out the answer? What kind of evidence would I need? Um, Some questions are not answerable from a scientific perspective. Um, And some questions are answerable, but we don't happen to have the answer yet. Nobody has looked at them. And some questions we have the answer to. So like where along the spectrum does this question fall? Um, But I do think the saying, I don't know, is really important. It it also, you know, scientists need, we need to sometimes be more humble about that. it humanizes us. So yeah, I had a really interesting um, interaction. I was the scientist is in, in our exhibit. Um, So this is a two hour program. I bring some objects out into the exhibit and just chat with visitors. And there was a mom who came up to me with uh, um, her two kids and she was asking questions about what I had on my cart. And then she said, well, do you actually believe all of this? And immediately I thought, okay, I'm going to change what I'm, what my goal for this interaction is. My goal for this interaction with somebody who feels real trepidation about this evidence, about this evidence, she was talking about how she homeschools her kids and they were from out of town, not from the DC area. And I thought, okay, the most important thing to come out of this interaction has to be a feeling of respect and connection. I don't care if I like if she learns anything about the science. This is about making science not scary, making scientists not jerks. Um and so we talked about part of what I was talking about with that particular program was about bringing my son to the field in Kenya actually. So I had some pictures of us and so we were talking about like what it's like to be a parent and what it's like to, you know, have your kids along when you're doing things. And so both of us were able to sort of bring it back to like the things that we have in common. Um, So I think it's, it's starting from finding a place of connection and also being explicit about like the goal of science is not to undermine faith. Like I don't go out to the field to find fossils in order to invalidate somebody's religious perspective. That is not the goal of science. We are interested in finding out more about the natural world. And, and I'm not, you know, I don't, we're not asking visitors to like leave their religion at the door when they walk in the hall of the museum. You know, people are whole and complex and wonderful and, you know, bring lots of things to these conversations. And so just also validating that it can be uncomfortable and, you know, it's okay that it's uncomfortable and and not to be, um, and just to be understanding about that, I think helps.
0: And, and be able to know what are the limits of science and to be able to say, you know, what does this mean about Adam and Eve? And to be able to say, I'm assuming something along the lines of that's that's not something that I can really answer because that's not a it's not a scientific question. Although it does be it does bump up of mm-hmm. where did we come from? Right. Like that. You know, that's the, yeah. that's where the question that's
1: that's the, exactly that's the basic thing underlying the question, and and it's interesting when you talk about what's not a scientific question. So um, I lead a project, the second version of a project that is developing materials to um, teach evolution and human evolution in high school biology classrooms, and part of that is also developing a resource. To help teachers who are in communities where it's just uncomfortable to teach about this topic or engage with this kind of evidence, how do you ease students into learning about evolution if maybe they've been told that it's, like, not okay to learn about, or that it's bad to learn about, or that it will make them have to abandon their religion, Um so one of the ways we approach it is talking about what are some what are scientific questions and what are non-scientific questions. Not that non-scientific questions aren't valid, they're incredibly important, but they're not things that scientists and science and a science classroom deals with. Um, so, really, making exactly talking about the limits of science is really important. And what you know, scientists, we need to stay in our lane and not overstep our bounds and make sure that we are not trying to answer questions that are not appropriate for science to answer.
0: And I was thinking about uh, there's a friend of mine, um, uh, Professor Stuart Firestein, who's at Columbia University, who's um, who's done a lot of work on science education, also. And one thing that he's talked about is that there are all these polls that often say x number x percentage of, of the population doesn't the word is believe in evolution which i i don't like that word but i don't people either, say, but yeah. whatever whatever the, and um and then you ask somebody do you understand evolution and it's a much higher number now, understanding evolution is much more complicated than what we think it is but as 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 he says it's not that people don't understand it it's that it's that they don't necessarily accept it, and 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 as he says, on a day to day basis, though, what's the cost of, of a fundamentalist Christian um, rejecting evolution? And the answer is they they don't really lose all that much. If they if, you know, evolution does not really impact their their life on a day to day basis, but if you say as a as a fundamentalist Christian. I accept evolution. You are having a cultural marker that may then exclude you from your community there. There's a tremendous cost of saying that. And so, um, you know, as you're talking about of being able to sort of lower the temperature and build that kind of connection and to not raise the temperature of like, no evolution, no creation, no evolution, no creation. I think some of that is how much can people understand it because i think being able to understand it helps us understand what the what the world is and then be able to build relationships and connections so that the the public temperature goes down as well
1: yeah exactly and i think there've been some you know really good science education studies about the really complex relationship between accepting evolution and understanding it or believing in evolution. Like you said, I don't like that term either. Um, But there's, and it's not, it's not linear and it's not a direct relationship. You don't have to accept it in order to understand it and you don't have to understand it in order to accept it. Um, And so, like you said, it's really about your community affiliations and the worldviews that are acceptable within those community affiliations that um, oftentimes dictate how somebody might answer a question on a survey, how they might, you know, really feel outside of how they answer a question on a survey, Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I think that it's, um, you know, I've, I've enjoyed doing this science education research project with high school students um, and really getting a sense of, like, what are they grappling with, what are the teachers grappling with, Um, and how can we, make it okay for students to engage in this evidence and and ironically um you know when i was writing the grant proposal to national science foundation <clears throat> talking about how Um, human evolution might seem like the highest hurdle, but it's actually such a great point of entry because what are teenagers most interested in themselves? Um, So if we can, you know, have science connected to people, um, connected to humans, then I think we can open a door that might not otherwise be
0: opened. And, you know, when you talk about teenagers, looking at themselves, one of my first jobs was for actually a nonprofit educational organization called Facing History and Ourselves, which is a Holocaust education organization um, trying to understand history. And I think, and, and how do we understand history as it linking to ourselves? And that's, and you know, with what, what you're doing is also understanding a much wider scope of history, but linking history and ourselves. Um, because one of the things that that, that we're seeing in the last, certainly in the last couple of months and even in the last couple of years, which is I think STEM is really critical, but it's also really important to understand poetry and history and the link between ethics and science and, and being able to have a wider swath of these kinds of conversations because, It's wonderful if everybody's able to code or able to be able to build technological pieces or even in the conversations that are happening now of follow the science, follow the science, follow the science. Well, some of these questions of who should get vaccinated first and how, that's not a scientific question. That's an ethical question. And so how do we link some of these academic and intellectual pursuits to questions that we're grappling with here and now,
1: yeah, and absolutely. And that's why that intersection between science and everything else, humanities, ethics, um, you know, literature, I mean, that you, we shouldn't have one without the other, because exactly when it comes to the the where the rubber meets the road, the implementation of science and things like policy, um, though, exactly, those are exactly the questions that are outside of the realm of science. And that's why we can't just, it's not just about the science.
0: So there was a question that, that somebody asked of, of wondering if there's a way to get a tour of the Smithsonian online. Yes. And many of us can't come to D.C. right now, Oh,
1: yes, there is, actually. And so um, if you Google... NMNH, which is National Museum of Natural History, MNH Virtual Tour. Um, You will be able to find there are, there's a self-guided tour. So you can go into our different exhibits and there are 360 views where you can stand in various spots and kind of look all around. There are a few exhibits for which there are now narrated tours. So we've taken some of those 360 views and gone in. And I'm actually the narrator for the Hall of Human Origins Virtual Tour. So there's, I think, three video. Three or four videos that we did of the Hall of Human Origins, where I actually sort of walk you around a little bit, in a sense. Although we did it all remotely, which was pretty cool. Um, yes, yeah, so yeah, you can either do a self-guided tour or um, a narrated tour, and the narrator tour, narrated tours are just videos. That's the best we can do. I haven't seen my office in months. I miss the museum very much. I I can't wait till we can all go back.
0: I, I hopefully hopefully soon. Um, that's but but I think being able to see some of these different pieces and, and I think part of what's gotta be so interesting for you is being able to physically hold parts of our human history and our our ancestry and um and you're being able to see not just knowing the story and oh I can go on to ancestry.com or whatever 23andme but actually to to hold a a tooth that probably probably was an ancestor of ours, given how interconnected we all are as human beings.
1: Oh, it is like still gives me chills and like raises the hair on the back of my neck when I get a chance to do that. I don't tend to work directly with human fossils or human ancestor fossils, although I did have the opportunity to study some when I was in Kenya um, a couple of years ago. And it's like, You know, being in the vault where all the early human fossils are, it's a it's I mean, it's close to a religious experience for a scientist in a sense, because it is like all of these ancestors in one place and they are precious, um, you know, precious clues to the past. So because of the questions that I ask and the evidence that I study, um, those little bits of animal fossil bones that have butchery marks on them. Uh, you know, getting to to excavate those myself, pulling a fossil out of the ground and thinking, okay, I know because of how old the sediments are that this fossil is a million and a half years old. I might be able to tell what animal belonged to, but because of this butchery mark, that is basically fossilized human behavior. It is a way to know that an early human butchered an animal here. And that's kind of magical to be able it's like you are reaching through the past or you know through a window to the past and like it's it's pretty it's very exciting so like you know I can nerd out i like even getting to go in museum collections and you're like wow these like they're they're you know they're literally evidence of of fossilized behavior in the past and so that's I
0: love that and you know the word that you use of the- religious experience of the interplay in my mind the interplay particularly between religion and science is a level of awe and and majesty and and that makes us feel very small it also makes us uh, appreciate our maybe uniqueness might be the right word or or specialness and also our connectedness with everything else that that we can feel both of those things it's almost like there's a wonderful line from from Rabbi Simcha Simkhabunum that a lot of rabbis love including me that said we should have two pieces of paper in your pocket one says in for my sake the world was created and the other says i am but dust and ashes and you need to take out whichever one is appropriate for you and so you know it is one that i am so special and unique and part of a unique part of the of the human uh, human and and evolutionary history and and humanity is so special and i am simply another animal i'm simply part, another mammal i'm simply part of, of a larger living system and am no more or less than anything else in this world
1: and i think the scientific like sort of equivalent of that is you know there are seven point whatever billion humans on the planet like we are just one among billions literally yet all of human evolutionary history has led to me and led to you and led to everybody else. And so it's, you know, you know, being able to study for me, the early human fossils, like I got a chance to study a really famous fossil called Turkana Boy, which is a, you know, eight to nine year old homo erectus skeleton from Northern Kenya that like, you know, everybody who studied paleoanthropology has heard of this fossil. And I'm like getting a chance to like study it and touch it. it was an amazing experience because lots of it connects me to other paleoanthropologists. It connects me to early humans that lived in Northern Kenya, you know, so I'm like, I'm a member of all these different groups, the scientific community, sort of the human community. Um, Yeah.
0: Well, that's why the work that you're doing is so important of being able to help us understand and contextualize who we are in a, in a larger sense, and also being able to communicate science in a way that it's not (laughs) battering people with facts. Facts don't change people's minds. As you've said, it's conversations and relationship building. And and you've done such an incredible job of being able to translate and inspire people to be able to understand who we are in all of that sense. So thank you so much, for taking the time here this afternoon.
1: Oh, thank you very much. This was a really fun conversation.
0: Thank you for joining this episode of Sacred Science, and we hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Brianna Pobiner. You can find her on Twitter at Brianna Pobiner. Our guest on our next episode will be Professor Emily Oster, a professor of economics at Brown University, and whose data on risk and reward in the world of COVID helped thousands of parents navigate this new world. I've been your host, Rabbi Jeff Middleman. Sacred Science is a production of Sinai and Synapses, and is part of the Judaism Unbound Network. Sacred Science is produced by Jeff Middleman and edited by Rachel Pincus and Zach Jackson. And to find all of our previous episodes and guests, you can find us at SinaiAndSynapses.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're interested in more conversations about religion and science, including articles, blog posts, and upcoming events, you can visit SinaiAndSynapses' website or follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Sinai and Synapses, on Twitter, at Sinai Synapses, or me, at Rabbi Middleman. You can also find out more about Judaism Unbound and its offerings at JudaismUnbound.org. Thanks for joining us. We hope to see you again soon, and Tuv, all good things.